Our scripture reading today will be taken from Deuteronomy 32. If you'd open your Bibles there, please. We're in the middle of this anthem song that Moses was told by God to write and teach to the people. We're going to be looking at verses 28 to 44 this morning, and you follow along as I read the scriptures. We start in verse 28, for they are a nation lacking in counsel, and there's no understanding in them. Would that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would discern their future. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? Indeed, their rock is not like our rock. Even our enemies themselves judge this, for their vine is from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison, their clusters bitter. Their wine is the venom of serpents and the deadly poison of cobras. Is it not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. For the Lord will vindicate his people, and he will have compassion on his servants, when he sees that their strength is gone, and there is none remaining bound or free. And he will say, Where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your hiding place. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword will devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. Then Moses came and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he with Joshua, the son of Nun. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the inspired scriptures and the exposition to follow later. Will you join with me, please, in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we bow before thee this day to thank you for who you are, We certainly, in view of this text, want to ascribe greatness to thee. You are the only God. You are the sovereign God. You are the holy God. You are the majestic God. You're the God of life. You're the God of death. You're the divine rock. We know, Lord, that there's no flaw in you or your plan. There's no failure with you at all. But our greatest fear, Lord, that comes straight out of this text is that you no longer move in behalf of your people. Our greatest fear is that you allow us to hit rock bottom because we've been so unfaithful and sinful. So God, we bow before thee today and ask thee for help. Please save us and deliver us. From this text, we know that you store up vengeance. We ask, Lord, that you would begin to pour that out on those who have made a mockery of you, those who hate you, those who hate your word. 
We pray that you would target them in your anger and cause their arrogant world to come tumbling down. Lord, we're living at a time when many of your people are hurting, and many of your people need thy help. We have no one else to turn to except thee. When we look at the lawlessness that's going on, we look at the economy, just the gas prices, it's hurting your people. And Lord, we see people who are running things that are not just, they're not truthful. There are deceptive people in high positions of power. So on this Lord's Day, we turn to you, as this text challenges us to do, and we acknowledge to you there's no one else to whom we may turn except you. You are a rock. So please, Lord, intervene and deliver us. In Jesus' name, amen. Years ago when we were in school, Pastor George Gardner of Calvary Church in Grand Rapids was diagnosed with cancer. He preached as many times as he possibly could until his strength would just not let him go to the pulpit anymore, but we had learned that on one Sunday he was going to try and preach one more time. We wanted to be there. We wanted to be there to see him, and we wanted to be there to hear him. We never wanted to miss a service. Can you imagine if you're living back at the time that this happens, and you get when, you know, Moses is dying. He's 120 years old, and God has told him he's going to die. But he's writing a song, and he wants all of us to show up Men, women, children, he wants all of us to show up, and he wants us all to listen to that song he wrote. It's a song from God. And I'm sure many families were excited to go hear him speak and would be excited at the possibility of hearing a new song. It's a brand new contemporary rock song. It's a song about a rock. Many were thinking, well, this will be a happy, clappy song. I mean, this is something we got to go hear. We've got to be there to hear him speak one more time. And I'm sure when we listen to that song, we're all going to feel real good about ourselves. After all, it's the last thing he's going to write. Boy, were they in for a surprise. When they got to the worship service, they must have been actually shocked. Moses said, here's the song. You need to see it, you need to sing it, you need to memorize it, you need to study it. It's a song that emphasizes your sin and stupidity. It's a song that says God is angry with us. God is actually fed up with us. And because of that, our world's falling apart. That's the song Moses writes just before he goes into eternity that he left with the nation Israel. And it is a song written for Israel. What we actually have here is a complete historical overview of what's going to happen to Israel and what did happen to Israel. The great glorious God had called her to be his nation. The great glorious God had called her to be his people. He chose that nation out of all of the nations of the world. He chose her. And his desire was to take her into the promised land and bless her there. I mean, God gave her his perfect word. He told them, all you have to do is follow it, learn it, apply it to your life, and I will see to it that you have prominence and you have prosperity. But God knew what these people were like, and he knew what they were going to do, and he's telling them what they're going to do before they even get into the promised land. This is a prophetic prediction of what's going to happen. As soon as they got over there into the land, and as soon as they would experience the blessings of God, they'd become fat and undisciplined. They would forsake God. 
They'd end up by their lifestyle and by even some of their worship mocking God. They would end up in demonic religious stuff. And they would actually come to a point where they would forget God. The logical thing for God to have done would have been, let's just start over. <laughs> let's, uh, let's just eliminate this nation here and I'll start over again. That's what he should have done with Israel. And frankly, at times, that's what he should do with us. But that's not what God does, and that's not what God is. Because eventually, even though they're people who've wandered way away from him, God's going to vindicate his own people. Eventually, he'll have mercy on his own people. He'll take them from the lowest possible level they can be at, and he's going to deliver them. Israel as a nation will one day be God's nation. Israel as a nation will one day shine forth the glory of God. It doesn't look like it now. But there will come a day when this will happen. But to get her to that moment where she will shine forth as the glory of God, he's going to have to take her through some low stuff. He's going to have to allow her to go through some dark and horrible things because she just does not want to turn to the Lord. So God told Moses, write a song about that. Write a national anthem about that. And when we are in this part of the scripture, we're in that part of the scripture where Moses does it. What we see here is God gives a negative, accurate description of his own people and of himself with the goal of getting them to properly focus on their relationship with him based on what he intends to do in the future. Now what God wanted and what Moses was hoping is that this song would get this nation back on track. They're about to go into the promised land and God wanted Israel to realize, look, if you wander away from me, Moses wanted the same thing. If you wander away from God, things are going to go bad. But if you stay close to the Lord, if you stay close to his word, you're going to be blessed. Now, Moses, obviously, in writing this, was not the kind of guy who believed in the positive thinking about yourself that people like to promote. I mean, people think, well, just think positive thoughts. Think good thoughts. It'll turn out okay. Moses didn't believe that. He believed that people need to think realistically, truthfully, factually, about them and their relationship with the Lord. He wanted Israel to carefully weigh decisions in life. He wants individuals to carefully weigh decisions in life, as you'll see today. He wanted his people to take the word of God seriously in all situations of life, Govern their lives in a way that would please the Lord. And God said, if you do that, you'll have a great life because you got a great future coming. And if you want to experience wonderful blessings until you get to that great future, that's what you need to do. This is a hard-hitting song. And he wraps it up with five hard-hitting stanzas, or we would call it five hard-hitting instructive themes. The first one is the humiliating setbacks that God's people have experienced are due to the fact that God, who is the rock of his people, has caused it. That's what he says in verse 28. For they are a nation lacking in counsel. There's no understanding in them. Would that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would discern their future. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? Now, God has already presented himself in the first part of the song as being the security rock of his people. 
So then his people get over there and they start experiencing negative things and they should ask, well, what's gone wrong here? If God is supposed to be our rock, how come it is we aren't strong? What's happened here? And Moses describes what went wrong in four ways. Number one, they lack counsel. Verse 28 says they're a nation lacking counsel. What a horrible thing to say to the people of God. They should never say that. You should never be able to say that. It's degrading for Moses to have to write this. I mean, as long as we have the word of God, we don't lack counsel. We know exactly where we can turn to find the word of God and the will of God. And, and what we lack is always found in the scriptures. And so what we lack is, frankly, people who know the word of God and people who apply the word of God. That's the lack here because the council's there, but they lacked it. Secondly, he says they lack understanding. If we're not growing in our understanding of the word of God, that's not God's fault. That's our fault. And it may be a judgment of God. You remember when Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians, he said, I wish I could tell you the meteor things, but I can't because you're carnal, you're fleshly. I can't take you to the meteor things. And then the writer of Hebrews backed that up and said the same thing, basically, when he said, God wants you to go out to maturity, and this you'll do if God permits. Well, why wouldn't God permit his people to go on to maturity when that's his will? Because they are just shut down in their understanding and in their development because they won't deal honestly with sin. The third way that Moses addresses the people is your people who ought to be thinking about the future. Look at verse 29, if you would. Would that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would discern their future. This is wisdom. Mark this in your mind and remember this the rest of your days. We'd all be wise to remember this the rest of our days. This is wisdom. What's wisdom? Wisdom is... Thinking about future consequences in our present choices. The mark of wisdom is to think about what could happen in the future if I make this present decision. That's the mark of wisdom. God's people should always be thinking about future things. So what would happen if I make this choice to do this in the future? What's going to happen if I do that? Wise people choose to think like that. If I choose to sin, what can happen? If I choose to rebel against the word of God, what may go wrong? Moses said that's the way wise people think. Israel had a bright future. The problem is present life isn't bright. And the reason why is they don't think enough about the future to make it affect the way they live in a daily way. The fourth way he describes them is they're people who should realize God does not favor them. That's what he says in verse 30. Had God's people been in a right relationship with God, he's their rock, he would have crushed their enemies. They would have been invincible. But when you look at Israel, she's not strong. Instead of a small number of enemies that chased Israel, they put her to flight. Now, if you get into a war with those that have bigger numbers, 
And if you get into a war with those that have a better strategy, and if you get into a fight with those who have better resources, I mean, it's understandable you would lose, but Israel had God. God was the rock. And Israel is losing. These people should have had enough sense to realize, you know, everything is falling apart in our world. God can't be happy and pleased with us if he's permitting that. And perhaps everything in your world is falling apart. Right now, from every angle, it's falling apart. Take an honest, personal look at your relationship with the Lord. Do private, personal business with the Lord. Ask him to search you and see if there are things there that's causing this world to fall apart. That's what Israel hasn't done to this hour. His second theme is the enemies of God's people realize their gods are no match for the true God. Verse 31 says, indeed, their rock is not like our rock. Even our enemies themselves judge this. Now, men develop all kinds of things that they would say would be their rock. They can trust in it. They can rely on it. They find their strength in it. God isn't like that. Men trust in their prosperity. They make that their rock. They trust in pleasure. They pursue that. That's their rock. They go after prominence and fame. Some pursue that. That's their rock. They go after power. Some people go after pills. The most dangerous of all is religion. There are people that really look to their rock, which is religion. We bow down three times a day facing a direction. That's our rock. We pray to Mary. And we have this crucifix and we have these rosary beads. That's our rock. We recite a catechism. Boy, it's invented by men, but, but that's our rock. We were baptized in water. What do I look to to be my rock? That. I was baptized in water. Some turn to drugs. Some turn to alcohol. That's their rock. God isn't like that. God isn't like that. He's not like what men believe is going to be their rock. And what happened to Israel is she got over in that promised land, and it was plush, and she started taking over land, and she started taking over plush places and plush houses, and she started trusting in the same kinds of things that those people were trusting in who got defeated. He mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah, which indicates that they were involved in immoral behavior. I mean, God's people were getting involved in immoral things like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah realized when God judged them, our rock wasn't right. The rock of Israel judged us. And verse 32 says, these people themselves realized they were involved in unclean, immoral things, ultimately led to their death. The heathen people realized this. God's own people didn't seem to realize this. Their religious system was a venom of serpents and a poison of cobras. The doctrines and the teachings of their false religions were deadly and dangerous. Their satanic religion was evil. It led people to death. They were no match for God. God's people should recognize that. Listen, listen carefully. False religion will kill you. 
And people should be able to look at God's people and say, they're not like us. I mean, people should be able to look at Israel or the church or the individual Christian and say, you know, they have a power and prosperity we don't have. Their rock is different than our rock. We're no match for the true God. But Israel hasn't acknowledged that. The third theme is God is the one who's responsible for sovereignly causing chastening calamity against his own people. But he says eventually, I'll vindicate him. Verses 34 to 36 Is it not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasures? Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. For the Lord will vindicate his people. He will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone and there's none remaining bond or free. God makes it very clear, I store up vengeance. I don't just settle scores instantly. I store it up. And God says, I have a mysterious plan working in how I discipline people. I have a mysterious plan sealed up in my treasure store, my treasure chest, as it were. No man knows it. No man sees it. No man understands all that I do. There's a great mystery to the work of God and the program of God, especially when it comes to remuneration. God says, I want you to understand something in verse 35, vengeance is mine. It belongs to me. And really, God is the only one you can trust with vengeance, because he's the only one who knows true facts. He knows what needs to be meted out. He knows when it needs to be meted out. And God says, I want you to know, I have ways that I do this that no one knows. You know, there are some strange things that are happening around the nation. I sure can't explain it. But I'll tell you this, God knows what's going on, and he has a plan for every bit of it. Can I explain why this or that happens? No. No, I can't. But I can tell you this, there's a mysterious plan of God at work here, and I would say probably the end goal would be for the good of his people to get his people to draw into a closer relationship with him. But if the sin is not faced, God is very clear to point out here their calamity will come. In fact, in verse 35, he says, in due time, their foot will slip. And this verse right here is a verse that was used to base probably one of the most famous sermons in the history of Christianity that's ever been preached. That verse right there is the verse Jonathan Edwards used in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He made a specific application to rebellious national Israel, but then he took it to anybody who hadn't believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're waiting to slip into hell. And there will come a point when all unbelievers who are dangling over the fires of hell are going to slip into hell. If you've not accepted Jesus Christ, you will slip into eternity at just the right time, at the time God determines, which will be the due time, and you'll burn forever. God permits bad things to happen. But then he says in verse 36, 
But there will come a day when I will vindicate my people, and there will come a day when I'll show compassion on my people, which would indicate the compassion and the forgiveness of God are available to God's people. But here's the problem. For most of the people of God to turn to him, they have to hit rock bottom. They have to hit rock bottom. Now, maybe you're there today. You're at the lowest of lows that you've ever been in life. If you want to tap into the compassion, the forgiveness, and the grace of God, you're going to have to identify the sin that's caused you to hit rock bottom. Because you're not going to get away with trying to explain it or excuse it. You're going to have to identify it before the Lord. Not before me or anybody, any human, before God. You'll have to identify the sin. Then you're going to have to condemn it. You'll have to actually realize this is wrong. I've got to get out of this. This is evil against the Lord. Then you've got to confess it. Confess it to the Lord and then forsake it. And if you will do that, if you're willing to identify the sin, condemn the sin, confess the sin, forsake the sin, you'll find the compassion and mercy of God. The problem is, for most people, they don't do it until God puts them in a place where they've hit the ultimate low. And if you sense God is not doing good things for you anymore, then turn to God honestly, and also trust God. Trust him, knowing that he is the sovereign God. Now here's a glimpse of what God is going to do in the great tribulation. He's going to literally, and we're seeing this in Revelation, so this coincides pretty nicely with Revelation, he's going to pour out his vengeance on the world, and when people have finally reached a point where their strength is gone, and when Israel has finally reached a point where her strength is gone, she's going to cry out to Jesus Christ and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's at that very moment that he's going to save her. And the other thing that is so important to realize here is that the victory that God's people can have can only be found in the Lord. It can't be found in themselves. People don't understand this. You'll never be strong in yourself. You'll find your strength in the Lord. Victory belongs to him. So cry out to him. Is there a mystery in all of this? Yes, there is. God, I am convinced, permits negative bad things to happen to his own people as a way of drawing those people to him. Part of a chastisement that he does against his own people. He keeps records of the things his people are doing. And one of the things he does is he allows their world to fall apart. He seems far removed. He doesn't seem like he's anywhere present there. And he allows those things to happen to get his people to turn to him. But you can know this about God. He has a storage treasure chest filled up with what ultimately is going to allow him to pour out his vengeance on God-mocking people who did bad things to him and bad things to his people. He said, I've got the records of that and I'll settle that. Which brings us to the fourth theme, God challenges his people to come to terms with who is the real true God, verses 37 to 38. The quicker we learn this, the better. And he will say, where are their gods? 
the rock in which they sought refuge, who ate of the fat of their sacrifices and drank of the wine and their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your hiding place. God is a compassionate God, but people must do honest business with God, and there is no other God that can get them out of the jam. No other. God challenges people to say, hey, where are their gods that these other people worship? Where's their protection? I mean, where's their rock? You can't depend on what they're trusting in. God's people need to learn this lesson. They need to learn a lesson. We trust in the Lord. We need to trust in the God of the scriptures, which we'll point out in just a moment. He's the only God. And it's like God's people seem to have lost that. They're trusting in a person. They were trusting in, we saw in Israel's history, a political power to somehow deliver them. They got trusting in false religions to deliver them. And God said, you're missing out. I'm the rock. I'm the one you need to turn to. And any who trust in anything but the true God of the Bible is one day going to ask, well, where was that that we trusted in? I mean, if you're placing your faith in you, you're one day going to say, man, I didn't make it. If you're trusting in man's religion, that isn't going to get it either. The trust has to be in the Lord. But then Moses says in one of the great parts of this song, He wants his people to know truth about him in verses 39 to 43. You know, there are two times where Moses just develops theology about God. We saw the first one last week in verses 3 to 14 of the 32nd chapter in which he developed the great doctrines of God. And here again, he goes back to developing the great doctrines of God. God is a sovereign God. He's the supreme ruler over everything. He can do whatever he wants to do at any time he wants to do it. And Moses said to God's people, you need to know this. You need to believe this. You need to trust this. Man, you see a world falling apart. You don't want to be a whiny, snivelly person. I don't know. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't, you don't want to act like that. Your confidence is in the Lord. And there are 15 truths that he brings out about God that God wants his people to know. Number one, the God of Israel is the God of the Bible, and he is God. Verse 39, see now that I am he. That's that I am statement. I am the self-existing, sovereign, covenant God of Israel. I'm the self-existing, sovereign, covenant God of the Bible. I can do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it. I am. God's people need to know that about God. Number two, there's no God in existence but God. Look at the middle of verse 39. And there is no God besides me. Do you see that? Don't be duped by the Muslims or the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Hindus or the Buddhists. There is no God there. There's one God. Only one God. There's no other God but him. It's the God of the Bible. It's the God of Israel. There's no other God. There's no other God that can get you out of despair. There's no other God that can save your soul. There's no other God that can save you from all your sins. There's no other God that can give you a meaningful and full life. You need to reach a point where you believe that. If God's people don't believe that, who will? So he says, you need to know your God, he's the only God. Secondly, it's the God who ends a person's life. Verse 39 says, and I put to death. 
You don't want to know this about God, but there's the truth. This isn't positive. I mean, what God's basically saying there is, I determine who dies. I determine when they die. I determine how they die. I determine where they die. I can't explain that. God says, that's my business. You need to understand that about me. You need to believe that about me. I'm the God who ends a person's life. The age, the circumstances, the means of how they died, when they died, that's left up to me. It's not your call. Fourthly, he said, I'm the one who gives a person life. That's what he says. And give life. Thank the Lord that some people in the Supreme Court got this memo. You know... People that protest for abortion are protesting against God. This isn't just a, a mix-up here, difference of opinion politically. We're talking about your standing against God here. Don't think God's looking on that with favor. He's keeping records here. He's keeping track here of people promoting this. God is the one who determines who is born and God is the one who determines who is conceived. And God is the one who determines who lives. And God says, I take full credit for that, regardless of circumstances, by the way. And you know the argument. Well, what if the mother's life was in danger? Ask John Wolverd. His mother was advised before he was born to get an abortion. Because she was told... If you go ahead and have this baby, you might die. And his mother said, basically I'm paraphrasing, this baby has been given to me by the Lord, I'm having the baby, no matter what happens to me. Well, not only did she live, but her son grew up to become one of the greatest eschatological theologians to ever walk on the face of this earth. Because she believed in a God who gives life. The fifth truth that Moses wanted God's people to know is he's the one who wounds people. That's what he says in verse 39. I've wounded. God says, I'm the one who allows negative things to hit you. Every infirmity, every infirmity that any of us have ever experienced have come and been filtered through the sovereign hand of a sovereign God. Every infirmity. You know what we need to do, and I'm including myself in this, quit whining. And quit complaining and start trusting. And realize that God has allowed this to come into our lives. He's allowed it to come into our lives for a reason. And if we're drawing close to the Lord, that is a great, great accomplishment from the trial. Which brings us to the sixth truth. God is the one who heals people. He says in verse 39, and it is I who heal. You know... I think this is so important for God's people to understand. When you find yourself with some infirmity, the first person you need to go talk to is God. Turn to the Lord in an infirmity. And Israel needed to know that, so do we need to know that. Every family member needs to understand I have a responsibility, if I want to be healed, to talk to my God about it because he's the one who can heal me. You know, we have a wonderful prayer chain, a couple of wonderful prayer chains in this church. 
And I mean, as soon as we get a request, it's on. And we have people praying. It happens all the time, I know. Because Mary runs that prayer chain. We get calls all the time. She gets that right on there. And we pray for people all the time. But I've been often tempted to say to the person who's calling in, are you praying? We'll pray, all right. We'll pray with you. But are you praying? Are you going to God and asking him to heal you? He's the one with the healing power. He's the one who keeps track of it. The seventh truth is he holds people securely in his hand. In verse 39, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. When God holds someone in his hand, no one can touch them. And Jesus referred to this very point in saying that any who believe in him were secure because they were held in the Father's hand. He said, I give unto them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, so no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What God wants his people to realize is if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're secure. You're held securely in the hand of God as a child of God. You can't get out of that hand. You can't get yourself out of it. Your sin can't get you out of it. You can get out of fellowship with God and make him angry, but you can't get out of a relationship with God because you are held in his hand. But then he says, number eight, you need to know this about God. He has to lift up his own hand to heaven to make oaths. He says in verse 40, Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say as I live forever. God says, I have to promise oaths based on myself. I have to lift up my own hand, and I have to make an oath with myself. And so when I make an oath that I'm going to pour out vengeance on enemies, I have to make the oath myself that that's what I'm going to do. When I make the oath that I will never allow someone to pluck out my people from my hand, I have to make that oath with myself because there's no one that measures up to me. So God says, I want my people to understand this. I make oaths and promises. I don't go back on my word when I raise my hand in some oath and make it before heaven. I'm God. The ninth truth about God is he lives forever. That's what you learn in verse 4. And say, as I live forever, God is eternal. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. No temporal being will ever escape the justice of God. The tenth truth is... He has a sharp sword. I want to point that out, verse 41, if I sharpen my flashing sword. We've gone through the book of Revelation on Sunday nights. And in the Great Tribulation, there are two nouns that are translated sword. When we analyzed those two nouns, we discovered they were different kinds of swords. You had one that was a close-range type of sword, Machaira, and then you had another that was... Uh, long sword, a big sword that was a more of a distance type of fighting sword, a rumphaya. In the Greek Septuagint, that is the Hebrew translation of this text, the word that's used here for sword is that short weapon. It's the one that refers to close range stuff. And by God saying, I sharpen my sword and I devour flesh, he's basically saying here, I'm personally involved in individual attacks. Need to understand this about God. I'm personally involved in determining who I attack. I'm personally involved in who lives. I'm personally involved in who dies. Now, people don't want to know this about God. They want to think of God as being just like their buddy going to the beach with them. 
He'd never hurt him. He'd never do anything against him. Moses said, you need to have this theology about the Lord. You need to understand this about God. He's a God who has an arsenal of weapons. He can use those weapons against people to accomplish his purposes. Then he brings up the 11th truth. He's a God who pours out justice. In verse 41, and my hand takes hold of justice. You know, when people go into the legal professions, they take an oath. And the oath, in part, says they'll uphold justice. Unfortunately, when some of the people get into power, they don't do it. In fact, they almost do the opposite of, at times, what is justice. God says, I am a just God. Those people that are twisting justice are going to answer to me and my sword. Because I've kept records of what they're saying. I've kept records of what they're doing. I'm a God who is a God of justice. The twelfth truth is God is one who pours out vengeance on adversaries. Verse 41 says, I will render vengeance on my adversaries. Don't overlook that. Those who are the enemies and adversaries of God have a date coming. And the date is coming when they will face the vengeance of God. Judgment is coming. And God views it now as either being a friend of his through Jesus Christ or an adversary of God if you don't have Jesus Christ in your life. If you don't have Jesus Christ in your life, you're heading to the vengeance of God. The 13th truth is God is the one who repays those who hate him. Verse 41 says, I will repay those who hate me. And I don't want to be unclear on this point. The vast majority of people hate God. The vast majority of people hate the word of God. The vast majority of people hate what we're teaching here at this church right now in this text. In fact, the vast majority of churches won't even teach this stuff. They want a God that they've invented in their own minds. A God of love and a God of toleration and a God who just overlooks stuff. God says, you need to understand this. Those people who have hated me... Those people who've hated my word, those people who've hated my son, I'll repay them fully. It's in my vault, my treasure chest. I'm storing it up. The 14th truth is God is the one who will pour out vengeance on enemies. That's what he says in verse 42. I will make my arrows drunk with blood. My sword will devour flesh with the blood of the slain and captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy. God says, I want you to understand something. I will, not might, I will pour out my vengeance. And finally, I will bring joy to my people by the vengeance I pour out, and I will bring blessings to the people. Verse 43 ends... Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants, and he will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. God says, I want to bring this song to an end because there will come a day when all the nations of the world are going to rejoice over what I've done for Israel. And when you get to this point in my eschatological plan where nations are rejoicing because of all I've done for Israel, I will have poured out my vengeance on a God-mocking, Christ-hating, Bible-hating world. Verse 44 says, Then Moses came and spoke all the words of this song and the hearing of the people, he with Joshua, the son of Nun. All the people were there. 
they heard it. I'll bet you they weren't expecting to hear that song. When they went to the worship service, they probably weren't looking for that. But that was taught to the men, the women, the children. And this song, the theology of this song, needs to be taught in the church. Because God's people have lost sight of what God is, who God is. They've invented a God in their own mind. They've invented a God who loves rock music in a church. They've invented this. This doesn't come from carefully studying the scriptures. No, it's true. This song is about a rock, and it's a rock music song. But the rock is God, and the rock is Jesus. And if you want to be saved from all of your sins, you need to turn to him and be saved. Because God is going to pour out his vengeance by oath. He will pour out his vengeance on Christ's rejectors. He will pour out his vengeance on God-haters. He will pour out his vengeance on Bible mockers. By oath, he's going to do that. You want to be on his side when he does. I want to leave us with three parting thoughts from this remarkable song that Moses wrote for Israel. Before you decide to do something, consider the future. Before you make a decision, consider the consequences and what it might do to your relationship with God. That's an important way of thinking. That's a wise way of thinking. Before you make a decision, think about where will this decision lead me in my relationship with the Lord. Secondly, there is only one true God. It's the God of the Bible. That is why we go straight through these books of the Bible, because this is the word of God. He's the one true God. He's the only God. He's given us a written word. I am convinced he never intended us to flop around in this verse and that verse. There's a place for studying things. I mean, in all reality, doctrine systematizes all information about God in a variety of subjects, and so you're tracking those subjects through the scriptures. But I'm convinced when you have one Bible, one true God of the Bible, he's given us this word, he expects us to study it systematically. And finally, there's only one rock, it's Jesus Christ. If you want to be saved, you have to turn to him You have to turn to him to be saved because there's no religion that's going to save you and you're sure not going to save yourself. Let's pray. If you've never invited the Lord Jesus Christ into your life, you can settle that right now where you sit. Just pray something like this, God, I'm a sinner. I'm turning my life over to Jesus Christ right now and inviting him to save me. Our Father... It's amazing when we think about this history of Israel, what happened when she got into that promised land just as soon as Joshua is gone, the whole nation falls apart. We see that you still have a plan for her. You didn't write her off. You didn't abandon her. She's still your nation. That land is still their promised land because you're a God who is true to yourself. And oh, how we thank you for that. We thank you that when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we are put into your hand, and we can't get out of that. That's our eternal security. We thank you for that, because we know, Lord, that if it were left up to us, we would be out of that hand in a heartbeat. 
We're grateful that you're a sovereign God. Help us to always worship you and reverence you for who you reveal yourself to be, not for who we want you to be. In Jesus' name, amen.